Turn, if you would, to Mark chapter 7. No, we didn't take any trips this week. <laughs> Teresa is supposed to go to Colorado on Tuesday. Uh, it's grandparents' day at my, uh, our grandson's preschool on Wednesday. The problem is we have another daughter in town here that is supposed to have a baby this week. <laughs> and that wouldn't be a problem because we can't go visit them at the hospital anyway, except they have a one-year-old. And guess who's watching the one-year-old when they go into labor? So I'm encouraging her to go on, and I'll take care of the one-year-old, except for the fact that I do teach two days of the... Anyway, we're working all of that out. Last week, we uh, made it halfway through Chapter 7. We didn't quite finish the lesson. We kind of raced through a few pieces of it. If you remember, there was this discussion with the Pharisees because the Pharisees said, Jesus, your disciples aren't washing their hands correctly. It wasn't a washing for purposes of getting rid of germs. It was a ceremonial washing to remove the sin that you might have picked up as you wandered around normal people. You know, if I came in contact with a normal person, that is a sinner, not like me, if I came in contact with a sinner, it might rub off on my hands. So before I eat, I would go through this ceremonial washing. And Jesus ends that discussion by telling his disciples that it's not what you put in your mouth that's going to cause you trouble spiritually. Now, as I ended the lesson last week, do wash your hands before you eat. This has nothing to do with that. This is a spiritual discussion. And Jesus says it's not what comes in that corrupts you. Rather, it is what comes out of you that shows, that demonstrates the condition of your soul. Now, there's a couple of things that we kind of glossed over that I want to cover just very quickly. If you look at uh, verse 15... It's of chapter 7, it says, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that is going into him that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And verse 17, And when he entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about this parable. Now, did you notice something right there? I read verse 15 to you. And I read verse 17 to you. Where is verse 16? This is my King James Bible. It's actually my uh, Schofield edition that I got when I could read or something. I don't know. Verse 16 says, If any man have ears to hear, let him hear. So the question is, in my ESV, what happened to verse 17, 16? What happened to verse 16? And we'll just have a little bit of discussion about manuscripts, and then we'll move on to the lesson, because I don't want you to be concerned about the fact that in your ESV there is no verse 16. It's not there in the NIV either, and it's not there in lots of others. There are those who believe that 
we got the Bible today through some form of the telephone game. Are you familiar with the telephone game? You can do it with a group of people, right? We start at this end of the row, and Kylie says something to Teresa, whispers it in her ear, and then she tells it to Harriet, and Harriet tells Diane, Diane, Linda, and by the end of the row over there, we ask what the message was, and it's been corrupted. It's been garbled because each of these steps kind of changes it a little bit. I mean, let's face it. Sterling's memory is not as good as it should be, so when Linda tells him something, it may or may not be accurate. And that's what some people think about the Bible. In fact, I've heard this. I was sitting somewhere in a public place, and these people were discussing it. And they were under the impression not only were there problems in the translations, at some point Sterling decided he just didn't like what Linda said, and he changed it and passed it on. And I said, uh, wait a minute, I didn't know these people. And I explained to them the fact that we today have an abundance, an abundance of manuscripts that are very, very old about the Bible. Now, you do know, right, that we don't have the copy that Mark sat down and wrote out with his pen. He sent it to somebody and they made a copy of it. And then they made copies, and then they made copies, and then they made copies. And we acknowledge the fact that it is possible at some point somebody messed up. But unlike the telephone game where this person sends a message, we can go back to this manuscript over here, or this manuscript here, or the one there, and analyze that to figure out what got added and what didn't. When the King James Bible was written... The King James Bible is a magnificent, beautiful translation of the Bible. They used the manuscripts they had available at the time, which weren't very many. Since that time, we have found manuscripts that are much older, earlier in this chain, like down here. And we see that there's certain verses, certain words that were changed in the process of producing what became the King James Bible. Now, just so you'll be assured, none of these things that were changed in any way affect any major doctrine of the Bible at all. I mean, let's look at verse 16 out of the King James Bible. If any man have ears to hear, let him hear. We know Jesus said that on occasion because we see it in the book of Mark. So it's not like it's heresy, but it also doesn't really add any theological distinction to this passage. So we can have confidence because of the manuscripts that we have and the fact that scholars have looked at those manuscripts and say, ah, this word was added later. My favorite example of this is in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus says, don't be angry with your brother, what's the next phrase? Without cause. Except the without cause is not in the oldest manuscripts. Now, I know why it was put in there. It's a very good interpretation. Because we know that on occasion, Jesus got really ticked off at people 
But we also know that he had good reason to do it. So obviously it should be okay to be angry if you have a good cause. So somebody said, that's what this verse really means. I'll just add that phrase. But once again, in the oldest manuscripts that we have, that's not there. It's a perfectly good interpretation. If I were teaching it, I would probably add that. But me adding an interpretation is not the same as implying that it is in the inspired word of God. So verse 16 is probably not there. We know it's not there in the oldest manuscripts. But it doesn't distract from anything, it being there or it not being there. Any questions about that? <sighs> I'm off the hook. Verse 20 from last week's lesson. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. What is this teaching us? When I'm driving down the road, and somebody cuts me off in traffic, and I get angry at them, and later if you ask me, I will say, that person made me get angry. The reality is that person, by their action, revealed what was in my heart that caused me to get angry. Why is this important? Because you and I, I know you because you're just like me. We want to blame somebody else. It's their fault for making me this way. Philosophically, if we go back to Rousseau, Rousseau had this idea, a very romantic notion, that the only reason I do bad is because society has corrupted me. Society has caused me to be a bad person. If it weren't for society, I would be perfect and beautiful and wonderful. Now, to me, it begs the question, what is society made up of other than other people? But be that as it may. And since that time, we collectively work very hard to prove that that group of people made my group of people ticked off and it's somebody else's fault. We see this on an individual level. We see it on the level of society, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, just to make sure you understand, we shouldn't be ticking other people off and encouraging them to be angry. But when we look at ourselves, we need to acknowledge the fact that what defiles me is what demonstrates the condition of my heart. It isn't that I didn't wash my hands and get rid of the outward sin caused by being in contact with other people. What defiles me is the condition of my heart. So here's the question. I might 
be able to lock you in a room, keep you protected from the outside world, keep you from being influenced by other people with the idea that by doing so, I would make you a righteous person. In reality, the only way we obtain righteousness is by a transformation of our heart. And you know what? Locking yourself in a room to stay away from the outside world isn't going to change that. In fact, it's probably true that most of your independent effort isn't going to change the condition of your heart. What is going to change the condition of your heart is the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's why changing outward things, while it may look good and it actually may be a little good for society, isn't doing you any good. The Pharisees had mastered the external activities that they believed demonstrated that they were righteous. I am better than you because I do this list of things. But Jesus says their heart is wretched. It is the heart that produces these things in their lives. So, that's the end of last week's lesson. Verse 24. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. You know, he is being hounded by the crowd. The crowd is following him. He keeps wanting to get away, have a little rest, have a little relaxation, spend some time with his disciples. The crowd continues to find him. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now, the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. This is something that Jesus has been doing, casting demons out. Word got around, this lady comes. This lady is a Gentile. A Gentile is a non-Jew. Jesus is a Jew. His disciples are Jews. They're all Jews. So how is Jesus, this righteous man, this righteous teacher, going to respond to this Gentile woman coming to him? And you have to assume Jesus is in this house with his disciples and this woman comes in to talk to him. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, we all like Jesus, right? <laughs> this doesn't sound like the most loving thing Jesus could say. Why would I take food from the children? The children are the Jews. And give it to the dogs, the dogs are the Gentiles. And just to make sure we're straight, that makes you and me the dogs. Okay? How many of you think this is a really loving thing for Jesus to say to this woman? This woman is hurting. This woman is in need. 
Her daughter is demon-possessed, and she comes to the right place at the right time, and she asks the right person, and he says, why should I do that? Now, is Jesus just a heartless guy responding to this Gentile woman? Now, I have this idea that Jesus knows what's going to happen, okay? Just an idea that Jesus knows what's going to happen. And he's sitting there with all of his Jewish friends, and he's saying something with a smile on his inward face. Jewish friends, let me tell you something that you want me to hear, that you want to hear from me. Why should I give this to you, Gentile woman, a dog? And she responds. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said, For this statement you may go on your way. And the demon, the demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. The miraculous thing about this is not that he, at first glance, attempted to dismiss the Gentile woman. The miraculous thing about this, oh yes, that he cast out a demon. But the miraculous thing is, he demonstrated to all these Jewish guys sitting in this room, this woman has faith. This woman has a need, and I am going to meet it. Jesus was impressed with her persistence, the idea that she didn't just give up and walk away. He was impressed by the fact that she stayed even though she had received what would have appeared to be a rebuke. She didn't get ticked off. Why? Because she knew the only place she could get help was sitting in that room. Go to the book of Romans, and I think it's three times in the book of Romans, Paul says, this was given to the Jews first and also to the Gentiles. The law was given to the Jews first and also to the Gentiles. Salvation was given to the, and the, okay, you get the pattern. But then when he gets to the book of Galatians, he says there is no distinction in the eyes of God between the Jew and the Gentile. Let's go back just a moment to last week's lesson. There was this discussion about washing your hands. There was this discussion about eating unclean food. And we mentioned Peter's revelation after the resurrection and all of that, where God said, eat whatever you want. Everything is okay for you to eat. To a Jew, this is a huge revelation. It violates everything they were taught in the Old Testament. But Jesus takes this Gentile woman and yes, he does give the answer that all these Jewish guys wanted to hear from him. 
And then he turns and he says, because of what you have just said, go home. Your daughter has been cleansed of this demon. The miracle is not that he made this statement to begin with. The miracle is that he knew that this Gentile woman had faith and he knew that salvation was coming to the Gentiles also. It is a strange phenomenon, actually, if you look at the life of Jesus and his interaction with people. He is always chastising the disciples. He's going to do this in a moment. Chastising the disciples because of their lack of faith. But when the Gentiles come to him, he turns and he says, these guys have faith. Remember the centurion? Jesus, my servant, is sick. Heal him. And Jesus says, I'm on my way. And the Gentile centurion says, no. He says, I know what it means to command. I command men. I tell people, do this, and they do that. All you have to do is issue the command, and my servant will be. And Jesus says, wow, this man has great faith. The It's not a slap in the face, but the comment from this is not his response to the Gentile woman, but his response to the Jewish guys that the Gentiles are going to receive the blessings of the kingdom. That's where he's headed with this. And to do that, he had to kind of do this, okay, I'm not going to give it to the dogs, so that they would go, oh yeah, he's on our side. And then he gave the woman what she wanted. He healed her daughter. So, it's a strange phrase. Just as a word of advice, when you're sharing the gospel with people, don't start off by calling them dogs. (laughs) Jesus may be able to get away with this. You and me, not so much. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee, in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hands on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. That's kind of weird. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Epaphatha, And that is, be open. And his ears were open, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And we get back to the, Jesus tells them not to tell anybody, and they tell everybody that there is. Jesus has healed a lot of people by this point. Okay? He's doing this on a regular basis. What's this with all the sticking your fingers in the ear and spitting and touching the guy's tongue? Why would he do that in this particular case? Well, one commentary says that he's using sign language to tell the guy what he's going to do. Remember, he can't hear in that. Uh, I guess that kind of makes sense, sort of. Hmm. Let's jump down to chapter 8 for just one moment. To verse 22 of chapter 8. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes 
and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his village, saying, Do not even enter the village. Once again, what with all the spitting? Why is he doing this? We have two miraculous healings, and I might add, these, are only, these two are only recorded in the book of Mark. Mark is trying to say something to us by including these two miracles. The first one, he sticks his fingers in his ears, he spits, he touches his tongue, and voila, he's healed. The second one, he spits and he puts something on his eyes, and he is kind of healed. Did you catch that? He is kind of healed. He can sort of see things. But they look like, you know, the people look like big fuzzy trees. Any of you, you know who Ken Miedema is? He was a Christian, I think he is, a Christian songwriter. His big claim to fame was that he would make up songs on the fly. He, would, he came to our church one time, and the pastor preached, and then Ken Miedema got up and made up a song. That was the sermon. I mean, it was fabulous. He was blind, okay? And he tells the story of one time being with a group and driving somewhere, and everybody else got drunk, so Ken Miedema drove him home. <laughs> Did I comment that he was blind? <laughs> but he could see big objects, okay? Like, he probably isn't going to hit a tree, but, you know, still not the best driver in the world. Why? Do we have this one example of Jesus healing someone, sort of, and then healing him totally? Why this intermediate step? Let me just suggest something to you, because it's going to help us understand some more of this passage. In the book of John, Jesus heals a blind man. And that produces two or three chapters of discussion. Not about the blind man per se, but first about Jesus healing the blind man. And secondly, the fact that his physical blindness isn't nearly as bad as the rest of the crowd's spiritual blindness. The physical was a picture, a metaphor that Jesus used to explain the spiritual blindness of the crowd. And he's going to do that in this passage. He's going to have another discussion with his disciples and he's going to say, don't you see what's going on? Can't you hear what's going on? Blind man, deaf man, you get it right? Don't you understand what is happening? And I think in this particular case, particularly this second case of the partial healing before the full healing, what we're seeing is what you and I see in reality all the time. 
When I have spiritual sight, well, when I don't have spiritual sight, then I get to the point where I might have some spiritual understanding, but I don't have complete spiritual understanding. And then eventually I have a spiritual understanding. We're going to see this in the lives of the disciples. At the end of this chapter that we're not going to get to today, Jesus is going to ask Peter, who do you say that I am? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Right answer. He had some spiritual understanding. But right before that, He's going to tell them, don't you have a clue about anything? So obviously they didn't. They were still seeing people walking around like trees. After the resurrection, after the resurrection, these 11 disciples, getting Judas out of the way, these 11 disciples are going to change the world because their eyes will have been opened to the reality of who Christ is. So I think by giving these two illustrations, Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is communicating to Mark to write down this book that sometimes God works, well, God works in different ways at different times. Don't you ever think that you can put God in a box? Yesterday, God did this for me, and tomorrow he has to do the same thing again. No, he doesn't. God's going to do what God wants to do to give us the lesson that he wants to give to us. And sometimes we don't like seeing people walking around as trees. We want to see, and sometimes he just gives us a glimpse. Now, do I like that? No. I want the answer today. Yesterday would be better. But guess what? God's going to work the way God wants to work. So the fact that Jesus used, the word is means, he used something to accomplish these miracles, whereas other times he just spoke and it happened, uh, it shouldn't surprise us. It does surprise us because we want to put God in a box. And God is not going to be in any box that we have created. <sighs> Backing up again. So, he opened, uh, we're back to the very end of chapter 7. He has healed the man who could not speak and could not hear. And Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. We've had this discussion multiple times. Why does he even bother telling them not to tell anybody? And my question, my bizarre question has always been, are these people sinning because they're not doing what Jesus told them to do? I think that, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question. Let's just write it down to their enthusiasm for what Jesus was accomplishing. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. In those days, when a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now 
three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. You've heard this story before, right? Like two chapters ago? And some of them came from far away, and his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and giving, having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they set them before the crowd, and they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that they're that these also should be set before them, them being the people. And they ate and were satisfied, and they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full, and there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away, and immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanthia. You've heard this story before, right? Two chapters earlier, he had fed 5,000 people. We had a long discussion about that. We're not going to have a long discussion about this one. My question is, are the disciples clueless? I mean, let's face it. Two chapters earlier, we don't know what that was in time, but at, you know, a month earlier, they had 5,000 men plus women and children. They were starving. Jesus said, feed them. They said, uh, how are we going to do that? And he says, give me what you got. And he starts breaking it into pieces. And he's breaking and he's breaking and he's breaking and all of them get stuffed and they have left over. So why don't the disciples sit here and go, Jesus, what did you do last time? It's time to do that again. Instead, they're clueless. Remember, I'm getting to this point that we're going to get to maybe in a moment. It may be next week. In a moment, he says, are you blind? Can't you hear? Can't you remember? Apparently not. Think about it this way. I don't know the exact timeline. He feeds 10,000 people. The next week, they're eating bread they bought at the store. The next week, they're eating bread they brought at the store. The next week, they're eating bread they bought at the store. Now, you're a disciple after this feeding of the 10,000, 5,000 guys and the mob. And the next week, Jesus says, go to the store and buy some bread. Why aren't you just thinking, hey, Jesus, why don't you just conjure us up some more bread? And he doesn't do it. The next week, you think... Why doesn't he just conjure us up some more bread? And he doesn't do it. And you begin to think, Jesus has forgotten how. <laughs> that was a one-shot deal. But you know what the people want. The people want bread. All Jesus had to do was feed 10,000 people a week for his entire earthly ministry, and he would have had a bazillion guys ready to take on the Roman army. But you know what? Jesus was not interested in taking on the Roman army. The miracles were simply to demonstrate that he is the Son of God. The next week, you still had to go to the store and buy bread. And you know what? 
That's okay. That's okay. So here we get to the next crowd, and he turns to his disciples. Don't you just wish one of the disciples would say, yes, it's going to happen again. But they go, how can we feed them in this desolate place all over again? The Pharisees came, verse 11, and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Now, let's just stop right there. What is it that the Pharisees want? Do they want to believe? No. Do they want to understand? No. They want to test him. They want to prove that he isn't who he says he is, or he isn't what the people say he is. They want some kind of miraculous sign. Now let's back up a little. He fed 4,000 guys from a handful of pieces of bread. He has healed blind people. He has healed deaf people. He has fed 5,000. He has cast out demons. He has, he has, he has, and they want a sign. That demonstrates they're not interested in the truth. They came to argue with him. And you know what? We all know people like this. Some of us are people like this. We all know people who go through the Bible and say, you know what, that couldn't possibly happen. Or that's a contradiction. I've heard it before. One story says he feeds 5,000, and the next story says he feeds 4,000. See, it's a contradiction. No, it's not. It just happened at different times. But they want to argue. They want to prove it false. And that's what the Pharisees are after. So at the end of this arguing, they're going to Jesus, give us a sign. Give us a reason to accept your authority. And what does Jesus tell them? He sighed deeply in his spirit. Just out of curiosity, don't raise your hands, but how many of you have ever sighed deeply in your spirit? Oh, gosh. Not again. Jesus is sitting there talking to the religious leaders of his day. They are the ones that are responsible for the spiritual development of the average people in the street. He just sighs in his heart. Why does this generation seek a sign? Why, do you, why is that your goal? I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Now, the word generation doesn't necessarily mean, you know, the Gen Xers or the baby boomers. Or, I think that this generation is this group of spiritual leaders. You, the spiritual leaders... 
You should be the ones telling the people about Messiah. And instead, all you're doing is arguing. There is no sign that I would give you that is going to do a bit of good because your hearts are hardened. More about that much later. Now, in Matthew, there is a clause added to the end of this. This generation, you will not get a sign except the sign of Jonah. Now, you're a good Pharisee. You know your Old Testament, what we would call the Old Testament. You know the story of Jonah. What, if, what in the world is the sign of Jonah? As Jonah was in the belly of a whale, a fish, for three days, so will the Son of Man be in the earth for three days. Now, I can understand that that would be a little obscure to them. But what he's telling them is, after the sign has come, you'll know. Well, if your heart isn't hardened, you will know. And he left them and got into the boat and went to the other side. That's all he told them. What is this teaching us? It's teaching us faith. But remember the parable of the soils. Remember Jesus said, this parable is kind of important because if you don't understand it, you're not going to understand anything else. There is seed that falls on the hardened soil. It takes no root. It shows no growth. And that's just a fact. You have to accept it. And Jesus is sitting there doing miraculous deeds. And these Pharisees know that. These Pharisees are following Jesus around. They know what he does. But they have hardened hearts. I might add, just as an aside, in the scripture there are people who ask God for a sign. You know? The whole thing with the fleece being wet and not wet and all that stuff in the Old Testament. There are people who asked for a sign and God gave it to them. Why? They were trying to determine the will of God. What do I need to do? God, are you really telling me to do this? They weren't saying, God, I know you're not there, so prove to me you're there by doing something that I'm not going to pay attention to. Yes. They did believe. That's true. I still think they wanted the sign. Yeah, because the sign yeah. Wasn't their yeah. There is a difference between going to the Scripture and saying, God, I don't understand this. Help me to understand it. And going to the Scripture and saying, I don't want to understand this, and I'm going to prove that it's not true. Well, we didn't get to the next story, but we'll do that next week because it ties all of this together. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your miraculous deeds. I pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes, our spiritual eyes, so we could see and understand your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.